Chapter 10 of A Bunch of Everlastings, or Texts That Made History, by Frank W. Borum. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tim Bauer. Chapter 10. J.B. Goff's Text. He is an old man of twenty-five. Nobody seeing him tonight would suspect that he had seen so few winters, and nobody would suspect that forty-four summers filled with sunshine and song lie between him and his grave. Here he sits at a bare table in an empty, cheerless room. He shivers, for he is hungry, and he is insufficiently clad. His thin arms are folded on the table, and his haggard face rests upon them. He feels that he has come to the fag end of everything. He has just completed seven dark and dreadful years. During those years, as he himself tells us with a shudder, in the brighter after days, during those years I wandered over God's beautiful earth like an unblessed spirit. It was like being driven by whips across the burning desert. I was forever digging deep wells to quench my maddening thirst, and forever bringing up nothing but hot, dry sand. Seven years of darkness, seven years of slavery, seven years of dissipation, seven years of sin. But let us not be too swift to pity. Pity, like charity, must be intelligent. It is too sacred a thing to be wasted or squandered. It does not follow because this man is ragged and wretched that he is therefore poor. He is rich. It is only in such extremities of distress that men discover their buried wealth. Tonight, sitting in despair, within this squalid room, he suddenly finds himself possessed with incalculable treasures. Memory yields up her golden hoard. There rush back upon him the tender, hollowed, clustering associations of his early days, the village church, the Sunday school and best of all, the dear old English home. As he sits here in this squalid room, his outer self is on one side of the Atlantic, whilst his innermost soul is on the other. His gaunt frame, disfigured by the life that he has lived, is in Massachusetts. But his heart, flying on the wings of fancy, is back among the sweet and fragrant fields of his Kentish home and the center and soul of all those radiant recollections, he sees the sad and wistful face of his mother. His face is still buried in his ragged sleeves, so the tears do not show, but they are there. Oh, that mother of mine, Goff used to say, she was one of Christ's nobilities, and she possessed a patent signed and sealed with his redeeming blood. She was poor in purse, but rich in piety, a brave, godly woman. She died a pauper and was buried without a shroud and without a prayer, but she left her children a legacy that has made her wealthier than peers and princesses. I remember one night towards the close of her life, sitting with her in the garret, we had no candle. She said to me, John, I am growing blind, but I don't feel it much, but you are young, and it is hard for you to have a poor, blind mother. But never mind, John, there is no night in heaven and no need of a candle there. The lamb is the light thereof. Oh, that mother of mine, she is neither poor nor blind now. She has left that dark and gloomy garret to bask in the sunshine of her Savior's smiles. And it was his mother, or at least the fond, clear memory of his mother, that came to his relief in the hour of his most dire extremity. That is a way that mothers have. But let him tell the story in his own way. All at once, he says, it seemed as if the very light that she left as she passed had spanned the dark chasm of those seven dreadful years, struck the heart, and opened it. The passage of scripture that she had taught me, and that she had buried in my memory, came to me as if they were being whispered in my ear by the loving lips of my mother herself. He is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him. It is the very thing I needed. I wanted to be saved. 
I cannot save myself. He is able to save to the uttermost, and he is the Savior for me. I said that poor as he seemed, his youth of twenty-five owned buried treasure. That text, he says, was buried in my memory. He is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him. See, he rises at last, draws his sleeve across his eyes, pulls himself together, and, clutching at that text as a drowning man clutches at his rescuer's hand, he walks out of that cheerless room in the power of an endless life. This, then, is J. B. Goff's text. Not that he held any proprietary rights in it. John Bunyan would dispute any such pretensions. At another time, says Bunyan, I was much under this question, whether the blood of Christ was sufficient to save my soul, in which doubt I continued from morning till seven or eight at night, and at last, when I was, as it were, quite worn out with fear, lest it should not lay hold on me, these words did sound suddenly within my heart, He is able, but methought, this word able, he spoke loud unto me, it showed a great word, it seemed to be writ with great letters, and gave such a jostle to my fear and doubt as I never had before or after, for he is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him. Is there salvation for me, even for me? asked J. B. Goff in his despair. Is the blood of Christ sufficient to save my soul, even mine? asked John Bunyan in that anxious hour. And to both of them there came the same reply. He is able to save to the uttermost. It is a great word, says Goff. It seems to be writ in great letters, says Bunyan. And by that gallant and assuring word, they were both greatly delivered. In the fairy story that beguiled our infancy, the three giants confronted the hero just as he was setting out on his romantic quest. J. B. Goff had precisely the same experience. On the very threshold of the new life, three tyrannical figures arose and endeavored to drive him back to slavery. Their names? The name of the first was Yesterday, the name of the second was Today, and the name of the third was Tomorrow. Giant Yesterday pointed out with terrific emphasis that the past is absolutely indelible. What's done can never be undone. There are some things that even God cannot do, and this is one of them. Wounds of the soul, though healed, will ache. The redeeming scars remain, and make confession. Lost innocence returns no more. We are not what we were before transgression. To the end of his days, Goff was haunted by the grim ghost of these seven terrible and remorseless years. I have suffered, he cried, and come out of the fire scorched and scathed by the marks upon my person, with the memory of it burnt right into my soul. He likened his life to a snowdrift that had been sadly stained. No power on earth can restore its former purity or whiteness. The scars remain, the scars remain, he used to say with bitter self-reproach. Giant Yesterday pointed to the dark black past derisively, held it as a threat over the poor penitent's bowed and contrite head, and told him in tones that sounded like thunderclaps that there was no escape. Giant Today points to things as they are. Look at yourself, the tyrant exclaims. Facts are facts. Your present condition is a fact. How can you evade it? Goff throws himself back in a chair and gives rein to his fancy. A vision, or rather a series of visions, come to him. Before him stands a bright, fair-haired, blue-eyed, beautiful boy with rosy cheeks, pearly teeth, and ruby lips. The perfect picture of innocence and peace, health, purity, and joy. Who are you? Goff asks. I am your past. I am what you were. Another figure appears. The youth has become a man. He looks born to command. 
intellect flashes from the eye the noble brow speaks of genius trained and consecrated it is a glorious spectacle who are you goff asks again i am your ideal i am what you might have been then there creeps slowly into the bare room a wretched thing unkept and loathsome it is manacled hard and fast the face is furrowed and filthy the lip is swollen and repulsive the brow is branded as the throne of sensuality the eyes glare wildly and are bleared and dim who are you goff again demands i am your present i am what you are by this expressive shadow show giant to-day sought to frighten a trembling spirit from its rich inheritance and as for giant to-morrow his case is ready-made it is easy enough to be religious to-day he says but what of to-morrow and the next day and all the days that are coming if one temptation fails to overthrow you another will surely bring you down and goff who knows the cruel strength of each temptation feels the force of what these monsters say the three giants withdraw leaving goff in the depths of despair how can i venture upon the christian life he has only to review his own indelible past he has only to contemplate his humiliating present he has only to conjure up the sinister probabilities of the unpromising future in order to recognize the sheer audacity of such a step can he reasonably hope to keep his vow through all the years ahead many a race is lost in the last lap many a ship is wrecked on the reefs outside its final port many a battle is lost on the last charge what hope has he of completing the course upon which he proposes to venture he feels that it is hopelessly beyond him and it is at that critical juncture that the text comes bravely to his rescue i am not able moans the distracted penitent he is able replies the text i should falter before i had finished says goff he is able to save to the uttermost answers the text to the uttermost to the very last inch of the very last yard of the very last mile to the uttermost to the very last minute of the very last hour of the very last day he is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto god by him seeing he liveth and maketh intercession for them and thus the three giants are discomfited and put to confusion and goff enters into a peace that only becomes deeper and fuller and richer and sweeter as the long and busy years go by every man carries in his soul a note of exclamation and a note of interrogation but we do not place them similarly the leper in the gospels put the note of explanation against the ability of christ to cleanse him and the note of interrogation against his willingness to save if thou wilt thou canst make me whole thou canst if thou wilt most of us find the prevailing wind blowing from the opposite quarter we give the saviour credit for a certain amiable willingness to help us but knowing as we do all that the three giants have to say we doubt his ability to deliver we put the notes of exclamation and of interrogation the other way thou wilt if thou canst but as j b goff discovered on that never-to-be-forgotten day the christian message is a revelation of the limitless ability to deliver it is never a try it is always a triumph we have witnessed this desperate struggle in the squalid room at massachusetts the struggle of an enslaved soul after freedom let us go back a hundred years exactly a century before this scene was enacted in an american attic a dramatic episode marked the historic ministry of philip doddridge at northampton an irishman named connell was convicted of a capital offence and sentenced to be publicly hanged 
mr doddridge at great trouble and expense instituted a most rigorous scrutiny and proved beyond the possibility of a doubt that connell was a hundred and twenty miles away when the crime was committed the course of judgment could not however be deflected connell was asked if he had any request to make before setting out for the gallows he answered that he desired the procession to pause in front of the house of mr philip doddridge that he might kneel on the minister's doorstep and pray for the man who had tried to save him mr doddridge he cried when the procession halted every hair of my head thanks you every throb of my heart thanks you every drop of my blood thanks you for you did your best to save me mr doddridge was willing to save mr doddridge did his best to save mr doddridge was not able to save but he is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto god by him that is the glory of the gospel that won the heart of goff that day and held him a glad captive through all the fruitful years that followed mr chesterson says that god paints in many colors but he never paints so gloriously as when he paints in white the crimson of the sunset the azure of the ocean the green of the valleys the scarlet of the poppies the silver of the dewdrops the gold of the gores these are all exquisite so perfectly beautiful indeed that we cannot imagine an attractive heaven without them god paints in colors but in the soul of j b goff he paints in white and we feel that here the divine art is at its very best forty-four crowded and productive years have passed since that grim struggle in the squalid room goff is again in america addressing a vast audience of young men at philadelphia young men he cries perhaps with a bitter memory of those seven indelible years young men keep your record clean he pauses it is a longer pause than usual and the audience wonders but he regains his voice young men he repeats more feeble this time keep your record clean another pause longer than before but again he finds the power of speech young men he cries a third time but in a thin wavering voice young men keep your record clean he falls heavily on the platform devout men carry him to his burial and make lamentation over him his race is finished his voyage completed his battle won the promise has been literally and triumphantly fulfilled the grace that saved him has kept him to the very last inch of the very last yard of the very last mile to the very last minute of the very last hour of the very last day for he is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto god by him End of chapter ten